Our scripture reading for today comes from the book of Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your mother and your father, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once in a while, I'll have this dream, and it goes something like this. I show up at an orchestra concert to play the oboe. Yes, I'm no Melissa Littlepage, but I did play the oboe in a former life long ago. And I show up to this concert only to discover that all of my reeds are broken and I have a solo that I didn't know about and had never rehearsed. And everyone's eyes are on me. Here's another reoccurring nightmare I have. You might be more familiar with this one. I go to the grocery store, maybe to buy some tortilla chips or whatever, only to discover that I'm completely, completely naked. 
Other people don't seem to notice, but I'm sure they do as I slink around from aisle to aisle. And all I'm thinking the whole time is it's a good thing I got the family-sized bag of chips to hide behind. Now, what I'm struggling with in those terrible dreams, and maybe you're feeling some of that on my behalf right now, is what I believe is not only one of our deepest and most enduring struggles, but is also the theme of our passage today. I'm talking about our struggle with shame. Can we talk about shame this morning? We're going to look at this passage from Mark chapter 7 and consider the topic of shame in three parts. Understanding shame, covering shame, and overcoming shame. Understanding shame, covering shame, and overcoming shame. First, understanding shame. Now, somebody might say, well, I don't actually see the word shame anywhere in this passage, and they'd be correct. But we do find the word defiled, also translated unclean, seven times, and the word wash or unwashed appears in this passage four times. And that's because this story is all about the question, how does a person get clean? You see, by this point in Jesus' ministry, a controversy was beginning to boil over. Because as we're told in verses 1 through 5, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, noticed that some of Jesus' disciples were eating with unwashed hands. They weren't participating in the ceremonial rituals of washing. Now, it's true that in the Old Testament, God gave his people a variety of laws that designated certain foods as clean and other foods as unclean. And you could eat clean foods and couldn't eat the unclean foods. And, as you know, there were also laws for ritual washings, ways that you would wash with water if you had touched something that made you ceremonially unclean. But there are two things that we need to understand. One is that by Jesus' time, an additional set of rules and regulations had piled up on top of the commands that God had given, what verses 3 and 5 describe as the tradition of the elders. These were more ways that you needed to keep clean a longer list of things you needed to wash, cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, as verse 4 explains. Things that God hadn't commanded, but religious people decided were necessary to follow. Jesus' disciples were getting busted for not following those rules, that tradition. The second thing to know is that God's original purpose in giving those food rules and those washing rituals was not so that his people would think that they could actually cleanse themselves by their rituals and by their rule keeping, uh, from the outside in, as it were. Rather, God's point in giving these laws and commands was that the water and washings would serve as a literal hands-on lesson, an object lesson that would teach his people that moral filth was real and that God alone could be the true cure, that God alone could provide true cleansing from the stain 
and the shame of our sin. You see, the question was, how does a person get clean? And the answer was God's love. And that question and that answer is still an important question for us today because many of us, far too many of us, live our lives daily feeling, well, filthy. You see, shame is that sense deep within that there's something wrong with me. It's the feeling that I'm not enough. Uh, the feeling that I am dirty, unclean. It all started, of course, back in the Garden of Eden, when sin and shame, together with it, entered the human experience. We're told in Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, Adam and Eve, after sinning, suddenly they knew that they were naked. And they hid themselves among the trees of the garden. Shame is a feeling of nakedness and exposure, like me in the grocery store with my tortilla chips. Shame makes you want to hide. One of the reasons why I think we don't have a good understanding of shame, I think, I would argue, is that the Western Christian tradition is generally blind to the power and the presence of shame because we talk primarily about our guilt and what Jesus has done for our guilt. And that's important. That is part of the promise of the gospel, of course. But guilt and shame, they're not the same. Guilt says, I've done something wrong. Shame says, I am wrong. Guilt says, I'm guilty. Shame says, I'm filthy. Guilt worries, everyone's going to see my mistakes. Shame worries, everyone sees me. Guilt cries out, forgive me. Shame cries, hide me. Now, I want to be quick to say up front that the good news of God's grace is that in Christ you are clean, you are clothed, you are loved. Amen. But freedom with shame, freedom from shame, begins with awareness of shame. And so we got to ask, are you beginning to see the presence and the power of shame in your life. I mean, maybe you lost your job during this pandemic, or maybe you've been struggling in your marriage, but in either case, you haven't mentioned it to anyone because shame has made you feel like a failure, filthy. Or kids, maybe you're struggling with online school. It's really hard, isn't it? And maybe you don't want to tell anyone because you feel kind of embarrassed. Or a lot of white brothers and sisters have told me recently that they really want to engage in the building of cross-cultural community in the fight against racial injustice. They care deeply, but it's hard because they feel tainted, stained by their association with whiteness. Racial shame is a real thing. It can even be debilitating. There is, of course, parenting shame and poverty shame, physical appearance and body shame. There's addiction shame, aging shame, 
pandemic anxiety shame, and maybe even shame for struggling with shame. I know that one. Beloved, our inner worlds are filled with shame, and we live in a world full of shame. It operates deep inside, usually undetected, almost always non-verbally, and yet very, very powerfully. Some of us struggle with shame more than others. I do personally a lot, but all of us struggle with it. It's part of the human condition. And to deal with this internal struggle, we always seek to cover our shame. This is our second point, covering shame. We tend to create all kinds of strategies to cope with the feelings of filth. One way we do this is we tell ourselves we're actually not filthy at all. There's nothing really morally unclean about us. And the problem, of course, with that strategy is it doesn't work. Our hearts, our consciences, the evidence of our lives betray us. They know better. We know better. And even Jesus in this passage tells us straight up, no, no, we are morally dirty. Our hearts are filled with filth. You see that in verse 18 towards the bottom there. Jesus said, you do not see, I mean, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside like food cannot defile him? Verse 20, rather, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, long list. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus says, you're not defiled, you're not unclean. No, no, yeah, you're stained by your sin. Some of that filth that we feel is real, and pretending we're perfect doesn't work. But there's a second way that we try to cover our shame, not through denial, but by what you might call berating and legislating. We berate, condemn, and criticize other people, and we legislate, impose new rules of obedience and cleanness. You might have noticed in that Genesis passage, if you're familiar with it, Adam and Eve, having sensed their nakedness, they then begin, out of that sense of shame, begin to accuse one another before God. She made me do it. Did you know that criticism is actually a way we attempt to cover our own shame? Kurt Thompson, a wonderful psychiatrist and author, uh, and I'm glad to say friend, he wrote in the book, The Soul of Shame, which I highly commend to you, these insightful words. One of the hallmarks of shame is its employment of judgment. I am referring to the spirit of condemnation or condescension with which we analyze or, crit or critique something, whether ourselves or someone or something else. But it is important to be aware that the act of judging others has its origins in our self-judgment. As I often tell patients, shamed people shame people. 
Long before we are criticizing others, the source of that criticism has been planted, fertilized, and grown in our own lives, directed at ourselves, and often in ways we are mostly unaware of. Eventually, judgment, and the same that is its master, and the shame that is its master, can become the source of an ever-enlarging circle of conflict. Oh boy, shamed people, shame people. We flood others with judgment and criticism as a way of covering our own sense of nakedness. Do you see that in your own heart? We berate and we legislate. We demand legalistic adherence and imposition of our human-made rules and traditions as a way of covering our shame as a form of our own personal shame management. We demand it of ourselves. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not be unproductive. Chuck DeGroote, another helpful author, counselor, therapist, wrote this, much of our busyness can be traced back to the constant frenetic energy we anxiously expend to keep ourselves from feeling shame. And we demand things of others. You see, this is what you need to do. These are the rules that you need to abide by in order to get clean. Thou shalt never disagree with me. Thou shalt vote for my political candidate. Thou shalt fill in the blank. We berate, we legislate, just like the Pharisees were doing with Jesus' disciples, demanding that all adhere to the tradition of the elders in order to be clean. And we do this, why? Not out of care for other people, but rather to make ourselves feel cleaner. Uh, no, 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 not here. There's filth over there. There's a dirty person. When we try to clean ourselves by our man-made commands, we always do so in exchange for loving and honoring others. We don't honor God. Jesus says this very plainly in the passage. You're keeping these rules, these commands, these traditions of ritual cleaning, and yet it's true what the prophet said. This people honors me this with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. Our hearts are far from God when we do this. Our hearts are far from one another. We do not love as we ought. We tell ourselves we have the power to clean ourselves and cover ourselves. In fact, we have no such power. We need cleansing. But we can only find it from one place, one person, in fact. And that's God. Can we close with our third point? Overcoming shame. How do we do it? Denial doesn't work for our defilement. Attempting to clean ourselves doesn't cover our shame. What does? You might have noticed that this passage actually gives us a subtle but earth-shaking solution. You find it in the end of verse 19. Mark, in a 
parenthetical, literally passing comment tells us this. Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. You see, from that point on, there would be no more defilement laws, no more clean rules. Those laws passed away with the coming of Christ. Why? Well, remember, those were just object lessons, the washing of one's hands with water, the separation of food into scrupulous categories of clean and unclean. That was just the training of the mind and heart of God's people. But those rules then had come to a point of their purpose being now completed. See, what those rituals provided symbolically, Jesus accomplished in reality, in his death, in his resurrection. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. Jesus literally hung naked on the cross, enduring its shame. And in doing so, he stood morally, spiritually naked in his soul before the courtroom of heaven, where he was smeared with the filth of your soul, my soul, and judged in our place. Jesus endured our shame on the cross that we might be made clean. As 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says, you were washed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus endured the shame of the cross that our nakedness might be clothed. Galatians 3, 27 says, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Do you hear the good news? Jesus endured our shame so that we might be freed from shame. So here's what we need to do. Here's one of your assignments for today. Whether later today or maybe it's tomorrow or whenever you get to it, take a long, hot shower. And in doing so, remember your baptism. Make use of that water to remind you that just as surely as physical water washes away the, the dirt, the filth from your physical body outwardly, even more true is it that the blood of Jesus has washed away the filth of your soul. He has washed away your shame. Remember your baptism in the shower even and believe the gospel. Maybe even preach to yourself. Sing it even. I'm clean. I'm washed. I'm loved. I'm clothed in Christ. I'm seen by God and I am loved. And do a dance. Just don't slip and fall. Experience your baptism, the washing of your shame even in the shower today. Okay, but besides a shower, what else can we do? Friends, can we grow in becoming more and more a shame-healing 
community. One where we make it safe in love for others to be vulnerable before us. Where we seek others out. We are all prone to hide and withdraw, but in love and gentleness where we pursue each other and and grab one another by the hand and and, and pull them with love and say, come on out, come on out from the, the shadows. Come on out from the darkness. Come on out. Where, where you uh, uh, enable them to bear their filth before you and you neither shudder nor run yourself, but you stare them in their face and you tell them, I'm not looking away. I'm not going to look away because our God doesn't look away from us. Where we share with them in their tears, our tears, and we tell the truth about our hiding and where we become a community where in the words that we speak, we're committed not to, to, to refuse to add shame to shame, where we become more and more aware of the way in which we criticize and judge one another out of our own shame and therefore increasing one another's shame, where we're aware of our rulemaking, our policing of cleanness of other people, in the way we talk about politics, in the way that we talk about faith, in the way that we talk about relationships in our lives. But one of the most important things that we can do in becoming a community that is being healed in our shame is working through our own shame. Because as Dr. Kurt Thompson also wrote so helpfully, what we do with shame on an individual level has potentially geometric consequences for any of the social systems that we occupy be that our family, place of employment, church, or larger community. In other words, one of the greatest gifts that you can give to your church community, family, is by working on your own shame. Drawing near to God with full assurance of faith, knowing that your bodies have been washed with pure water. That's the book of Hebrews. And drawing near then to one another just in the moment when you most feel tempted to hide and conceal, where you step out little by little, daring to be known, where you step into conversations, maybe with your small group, or maybe just with your friends, and maybe even with strangers, and you commit yourself in advance, I'm gonna try in the courage of faith and in this project of overcoming shame, I'm gonna dare to share one piece of me that I normally wouldn't be so comfortable sharing, disclosing myself, not as a masochistic, sadistic sort of exercise in in pain, but rather as an exercise in becoming known. Daring to be known, allowing yourself to be known, and in doing so, allowing yourself to be loved, embracing vulnerability, coming out of hiding, identifying knee-jerk reactions we have to shame, to shame the habits and the patterns that we have, and most of all, grabbing a hold of the promises of God that tell you again and again, as we need to hear it even now again and again, beloved, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. And so you were washed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit 
of God. You are clean. Jesus, help us to believe. Help us in our unbelief. Free us from debilitating shame and free our church communities as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.